1 Kings chapter 19, let's hear the inspired and infallible word of God once again. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, or a juniper tree. <clears throat> and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And let's pray. Lord our God, we pray that as we come to this portion of Holy Scripture, you would again grant to us your Holy Spirit, that we might understand why this portion was penned for us, that we might learn from the life of your servant Elijah, learn from your dealings with him, from his trials and temptations and sorrows and distresses. Lord, come and point us unto Jesus Christ afresh, we pray this night, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. God's servant Elijah has come in for some harsh treatment because of the fact that he ran for his life and ended up in the wilderness under a broom tree and asking the Lord that he might die. In verse 4, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Some of the commentators tell us that here Elijah exhibits signs of being a manic depressive. Others describe him as a whimpering defeatist. Others a man with an inflated image of himself and his own importance, and another, a notable failure, 
when God needed him most. None of those are very complimentary and I believe are rather harsh judgments. One goes even further, even after God restored him, uh, he is reproved by this commentator because nothing is actually recorded that he went and anointed Hazael or Jehu. He only anointed Elisha. Now we've not read that section, but Elijah is coming in for some harsh treatment. And there are two comments that I would make upon those observations. First of all, I would say that I am very glad that none of those people have been my counsellors and physicians when I have been spiritually languishing. The second thing I would say is this, that whatever Elijah went through and for whatever reasons he went through what he went through, God did not abandon his servant. Whatever the failings of Elijah are, God loved him and God had not forgotten him. God did not treat him like those Amalekites treated that Egyptian who fell ill. Remember the account in 1 Samuel chapter 30? When the Egyptian servant fell ill, the Amalekites who had raided uh, Ziklag and taken off David's wife and all their possessions and so on, the Amalekites just left this man to die in the wilderness without food and without water. That is not what God did with Elijah, his servant. And here I believe we can draw great encouragement. We can identify with this man in some degree. James says in James chapter 5 and verse 17, he is not a superman, but he is a man who has a nature like ours. He has his passions and his moods. He has his failings and his susceptibilities. But there is no contempt and there is no sarcasm on the part of God as he deals with his servant Elijah. Nor when he deals with us. God may chasten, God may rebuke, God though does these things in love. And whatever he does with Elijah, it is out of love and care and concern for him. Even though Elijah seems to have reached the bottom when he expresses this death wish in verse 4. I want to consider simply three things this evening. First of all, what happened? What were the events that led up to him praying that prayer in verse 4? Then secondly, why did it happen? What were the reasons for him coming to that point in his life? And then thirdly, what happened afterwards, the sequel? How did God deal with this servant of his who reached such a low point in his life? Well, first of all then, what happened? What were the events that led up to this death wish expressed in verse 4? The events that we have portrayed here in verse 19 and particular verse 4 portray for us what seems to be a very, very different man from the man who a few moments ago was on Mount Carmel. The man of prayer, the man of faith, the man of God. The man who, under God, rendered Ahab 
powerless. Elijah in chapter 18 had lived up to his name. God is my strength. God is my salvation. On Mount Carmel would have been a powerful display of God's power. The fire come down from heaven and subsequent to that the rain then fell in torrents. And these were both answers of Elijah to Elijah's prayers. And James in chapter 5 commends Elijah as a man of prayer and a man who trusted in God. But the prayer of verse 4 in chapter 19 is of a very different order. This man wants to die. He doesn't want to die at Jezebel's hand, but he wants to die at the Lord's hand. Lord, take my life. It's enough. It's over. I'm finished. Back in Jezreel, where Ahab and Jezebel are, Elijah is also there after this long run ahead of Ahab from Mount Carmel. A 16, 17 mile run. But in the palace in Jezreel, or the summer palace as it probably was in Jezreel, there's a very different state of affairs going on. Ahab, we are told in verse 1, tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Notice how it is put there. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and particularly how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Note it is what Elijah has done. Ahab does not say this is what the Lord God of Israel has done. All the blame is being heaped upon Elijah. Elijah, as far as Ahab is concerned, is still the troubler of Israel. And it tells us that really Ahab has not taken to heart that rebuke before Mount Carmel events ever took place. You remember how when Elijah confronted uh, Ahab, Ahab immediately said, Is that you, Elijah, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah turned it around and said, No, you're the troubler of Israel. But Ahab remained unpersuaded. He is presenting to his wife Jezebel the troubler of Israel. This is what Elijah has done. He recounts event after event after event, culminating in the slaughter of the false prophets. That tells us quite clearly that Ahab was not repentant. He did not see, nor did he relate what the Lord God of Israel had done on Mount Carmel. And he did not give then a true and faithful account. He did not come back and say to his wife Jezebel, Jezebel, things are going to have to change here and in Samaria when we get back to Samaria. Baal is going to go. We're going to remove the temple and the altar that I've built in Samaria. When the people on Mount Carmel cried out, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Ahab was not among them. And that's not the report that he brings back to Jezebel. That the Lord, he is God. Elijah, Elijah. Elijah's done this. Elijah's done that. And now she shows her true colours once again. We read in verse 2, Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah 
So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. 24 hours, Elijah. You're going to be a dead man. As far as I am concerned. You feel her anger. You feel her resentment. You feel her bitterness. Her revenge. Her hatred. The knives are out. She's a violent woman. She's not afraid to shed blood. She's already shed the blood of many of the Lord's prophets. One more, and particularly Elijah, would not make any difference to her. She's out to get him before another day goes by. And Elijah knew her reputation. Obadiah told him the details. And so we are told, when he saw that, verse 3, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. That was an even longer journey than the run he'd made from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. That was only 16, 17 miles. This was 80 miles. Out of the territory of Israel, right to the extremities of Judah. An 80 mile journey. And what is conspicuous by the abs- absence in these opening verses of chapter 19 is that there is no word of the Lord for Elijah. There is no divine sanction for his leaving Jezreel and going to Beersheba. There is no prayer on the lips of Elijah at this point. There is no seeking of the will of God There is no cry for protection from the threat of Jezebel. He runs, and he runs for his life. What we are confronted with here in verses 1, 2 and 3 is the blindness and the hardness of the human heart. What we are confronted with is the anger, revenge and hatred and violence and persecuting spirit of a woman and her husband. And I put it that way because she is obviously the one who calls the tune. We are confronted with that wickedness. This woman Jezebel is entrenched in her falsehood and her evil and her wickedness. If Ahab had any impression at all after Carmel of God's glory and God's greatness, any softenings of heart, and there isn't any real evidence, but if he had any, I'm sure that when he heard her response, any thought in that direction was driven from him entirely. He was and she was, and in any case, Ahab did not faithfully record it, oblivious to the signs and wonders on Mount Carmel, oblivious to God's great actions and the revelation of his holy name and his lordship, that he was in control even of the gods of so-called of Baal. And she is defiant. She is wicked. She is an oppressor of the godly. She is devoid of understanding. And she implements her policy of bloodshed. Those are the events that lead up to the prayer of verse 4. That is why Elijah ran. That's what he is running from. 
that situation, that situation of wickedness and evil and a threat to his life. Before we go on, incidentally, that surely rebukes much of the spirit of our own age in the church where you find a miracle sign working mentality that says if people see signs and wonders like this then people will be impressed and be converted. They weren't in Christ's day and they weren't in Elijah's day. Miracles do not soften men's hard hearts. Only God's word and God's spirit can do this. Now Elijah is confronted then by this blindness, this hardness, this wickedness, this oppression. Her threat, her hatred, her revenge. And he arose and ran for his life. And he ran all the way to Beersheba. I say he ran all the way. I don't think one could say he ran all the way. But he, he ran for his life. He didn't hang around. He went and he went as quickly as he could into Beersheba and prayed there, Lord, it is enough. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So those are the events that led up to it. But why? Why did it happen this way? Is it simply enough for us to portray Jezebel in her wickedness and her oppression? What was going on in Elijah's heart? What was going on in his mind? I would suggest to you that at this point, the very same man who had stood with such might and power and success on Mount Carmel was now a drained, disappointed and broken man. And while he was in that state and that condition, he simply could not take Jezebel's threat. One roar from this wicked lioness is too much for him and he ends up under the broom tree. Lord, take my life. But let me explain what I mean when I say he's a drained and disappointed and broken man. Let's examine that, explain it in more detail. What he was going through was a form of what I think we may call spiritual depression. First of all, Elijah was totally exhausted. He was a drained man. He was wiped out. All his physical, spiritual and emotional energy had been sapped. Sometimes we say we feel like a wet dishcloth. Well, that was Elijah. Drained, sapped. The tensions of Mount Carmel had taken their toll. So much was at stake when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he was alone. We're not told very much about his servant. He did have a servant with him. But his servant does not seem to play much of an active part in a supportive role. Don't imagine that when Elijah was on Mount Carmel he was there as cool as a cucumber. He was stirred up. The adrenaline was flowing through his veins. He alone withstood Ahab. 
He alone withstood the 450 prophets of Baal. He poured out his heart unto God and the fire fell. And then once that was over, he supervised, he came down from the mountain and supervised the execution of the prophets of Baal. And then he went back again to the top of Mount Carmel and persisted in prayer seven times until the rain fell. And then after that he ran a half marathon plus all the way back to Jezreel. Wouldn't you have been exhausted after that? Can you imagine getting to Jezreel? Yes, the Lord gave him strength. But don't imagine that he wasn't puffed. He was gasping for breath after that run. He was tired. He was weary. It took its toll on his limbs and on his physical frame. And once he sees what Jezebel intends, he then goes another 70, 80 miles on top of this. And there's no indication that he and his servant hired a chariot to go to Beersheba. They went on foot and they travelled as quickly as they possibly could. And then finally Elijah left his servant and went alone on to Beersheba. Is it any wonder that he lay down under the broom tree, totally exhausted? And the angel of the Lord supplied him with food and water. Elijah would have died had not the angel of the Lord supplied him with food and water. So he was drained. Secondly, he was also a bitterly disappointed man. In his spirit, bitterly disappointed. On Mount Carmel the people had cried out, The Lord, the Lord, he is God. In answer to Elijah's prayer. Remember his prayer. In verse 36 of chapter 18. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. That was his prayer. That was his expectation. Let it be known that you are God in Israel. And although the people on Mount Carmel cried out, the Lord, he is God in Jezreel in the palace. No indication at all that that was the case. If he had great expectations now of a reformation and revival of true religion in Israel, it was dashed by Ahab's report and Jezebel's response. The reality must have struck home hard to God's tired and weary servant. There are no signs of repentance in the king or the queen. Wickedness reigns on the throne of Israel. He might have reasoned to himself, it is one thing for the people to shout out, the Lord, he is God. But unless Ahab and Jezebel do the same, nothing is really going to change in Israel. And I would suggest that he was a bitterly disappointed man. He had perhaps wrong expectations but he had certain expectations and he could not see how those expectations were ever going to be realised and he was a bitterly disappointed man but he was also a broken man thirdly he was God's servant later on in verse 10 when he was in the cave on Mount Sinai Mount Horeb 
We read in verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Some people interpret this as an exaggerated statement of his own importance. I don't think it is that. I think when, when the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah, in verse 9, it's not an accusation so much as giving the man an opportunity to unburden his broken heart before God. He is speaking the truth. I have been very zealous. And the way that it is translated from the original language, there's an intensity of zeal here. I have been exceedingly zealous for the Lord God of hosts. But now look, your covenant has been forsaken by Israel. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And you feel something, the crushed spirit of this man, the broken spirit of this man. He had been concerned for God. He had been concerned for a righteous cause, God's righteous cause. And the idolatry and the wickedness of the people had broken his heart and the hardness and unrepentant heart of Ahab and Jezebel. It crushed his own spirit. He was a sensitive man. He is distressed. He's despondent. He's broken. He's ready to quit. All his prayers, as far as he can see, and all his labours on Mount Carmel have all been in vain. Sometimes ministers of the gospel get like this, like Elijah. They come from their labours, they feel that they've felt something of God's help and God's presence. But no one else seems to notice it or recognise it. No one says anything really significant. There's no apparent fruit from the preaching of the word of God. People might say, oh well, he preached pretty well. But they don't say, the Lord moved my heart, the Lord spoke to me, God dealt with me. And the minister, the pastor, goes away disappointed, worn out, and if that happens often enough, perhaps broken in spirit. No one's seen moved, no one's converted. But it's not only ministers of the gospel, it may also be some of you in that state. Perhaps you have a husband. Or you have family members or children who have now grown up. You've talked to them. You've prayed for them. You've wept over them. And you're worn out by it all. And you may say, what's the point of carrying on? What's the point of continuing? You may not actually utter a death wish. But you're jaded. You're downcast. You're despondent. You see no fruit. You are spiritually disappointed. In that area you feel a brokenness. Or you may undergo some prolonged trial and you see no end to it. And no apparent answers to your prayers. And you are ready to quit. And you're ready to sit under your own broom tree. And say, Lord, it's enough. 
I just can't go on any longer like this. Now I portrayed Elijah as a drained man, as a bitterly disappointed man and as a broken man. And with all of that going on in his spirit, in his heart and in his mind, is it any wonder that when he heard the threat uttered by Jezebel that he ran for his life? And I would suggest he made it even worse for himself for we read in verse 3, he left his servant there. Now he's alone. He's completely alone. He's got no one to talk to. No one to relate to. No one to unburden himself to. Apart from the Lord. No one to take counsel from. No one to chide him. No one to encourage him. Isn't it always harder when you are alone and isolated? Elijah is isolated. He's on his own. But notice in verse 3. It doesn't say when he heard, when he heard what Jezebel said. It says, and when he saw, he arose and ran for his life. When someone is as jaded and low as Elijah was, you see things and you see them out of perspective. I would suggest to you that the reason, the reason why this man ran for his life was that he had a distorted outlook and perspective as a consequence of his physical, spiritual, mental and emotional state. What he saw was a formidable woman who threatened his life. And he saw in his own mind his death. A certain degree of unbelief arising from the circumstances in which he found himself took over. The fact that God had hidden him and taken care of him for the three previous three years before he appeared to Ahab and then the Mount Carmel experience, the fact that God had taken care of him by the brook Cherith and sent those ravens to feed him twice a day, and then when the brook ran dry, took him to Zarephath, and the cruise of oil, and the, and the flour didn't run out in that widow's home. God sustained him. He was hidden. Ahab and Jezebel couldn't find him. They couldn't lay a finger on him. But all of that had been forgotten. And I would suggest even the things that have happened on Mount Carmel, he came to the conclusion, it's not worked. So I'm done for. When he heard that threat, he saw certain things in his own mind's eye. And it was a distorted outlook. And with that distorted, unbelieving outlook, he ran for his life. Now, behind all of this, of course, is Satan. Satan took advantage of the state and the condition of God's servant drove him almost to the edge and drove him to the point where he said it's enough now Lord take my life for I am no better than my father's I would suggest to you that Elijah because of his distorted outlook had forgotten his God 
All he saw was his death. But it was because of his state of mind and heart and his emotion. And so instead of running into the arms of God, he runs for his life to be a Sheba. And totally exhausted, places himself under the broom tree and says, let me die. And he falls asleep, perhaps never expecting to wake up again. What's the sequel to all of this, thirdly? What happened afterwards? What did God do? How did the Lord treat his servant Elijah? Not with contempt. There is no sarcasm. There is no harshness. As I said right at the very outset, the most important thing is he did not abandon him. In this state, despite his broken spirit, Despite his bitter disappointment, despite his exhaustion, God loved him still. He was still God's servant, although he didn't feel very much like it. He is still in God's hand. The Lord is still Elijah's shepherd. Though Elijah has no real confidence in God at this particular point. But God shows his love and his care. Suppose you have children. Suppose you have more than one children, one, one child in your home, in your family. One or two of them are fit and healthy. But there is another one who is sick and feeling and looking very, very unwell. Which child receives your tender care and love and attention? It's the child that is sick. That's what happens here. Elijah is like the sick child. And the Lord ministers to his battered and bruised and jaded child. He is a downcast man. He's an exhausted man. He prays to die. He falls asleep hoping that he won't wake up again. The Lord will answer his prayers. But look what happens in verse 5 and again in verses 6 and 7. In verse 5, as he lay and slept, and there's very few things that are as refreshing as sleep, he lay and slept under a broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him and woke him up and said, Arise and eat. He looked, verse 6, there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again, returned to sleep after food for his weary body. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now we will consider that latter part in more detail in a subsequent sermon. Because on that mountain he will meet with God and God will restore him and commission him. But what we see here 
in the work of the angel of the Lord. What we see here is God's kindness and God's care and God's provision for this man. He needs sleep, first of all. He needs food and water. And then more sleep and more food and more water. The man is exhausted. He has been through a profound spiritual experience on Mount Carmel. It has sapped him of his energy. He's been on a long run. He's been on another long journey. And in his spirit, he is just worn out and jaded. And what does God do? Gives him sleep, food, and water. How long did he sleep for? We're not told. I don't think it was a cat nap. This was a long, deep sleep to restore his physical frame and his spirit. In chapter 18, we saw in a very different context the way in which God's grace pursued Ahab and called Ahab to repentance. But here we see in another context the same God and his grace and love and kindness pursuing Elijah as he runs for his life into the wilderness. As it were, God ran after Elijah when he ran for his life. God in his grace runs after you when sometimes you run in unbelief. I would go so far as to say that in the case of Peter, Christ ran ahead of him and told him, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Christ was ahead of Peter. He knew what trials he was already going to go through and he had prayed for him. And I would suggest the same is true here. God, through the angel of the Lord, came and ministered to this man. God had already gone ahead of him and prepared the way in order to sustain the life and restore some measure of health and strength and sanity of mind to his servant. At some point, and we are not told at what point, here in this account. But at some point, Elijah will wonder to himself how he had been so foolish as not to trust in his God that he had run away instead of running into the arms of God and seeking his help and his protection. But the amazing thing is, in the grace of God, he ran into God's arms anyway. Because God had already gone ahead of him and made preparation for him there in the wilderness which was the place of death if you go into the wilderness even today and you get lost in the wilderness in Palestine you don't have many days to live you will die now we know as we said already Satan is behind all of this He's not only blinded the minds of Ahab and Jezebel, but he's taken advantage of Elijah's condition. It's a severe time of testing and temptation for this man. And he is almost overcome as he lies there under this broom tree in the wilderness near Beersheba. 
But God does not abandon him. Any more than God abandons you. Now you're not literally sitting under a broom tree. But are you in your own circumstances, in your own spirit? Is there something of that spirit of Elijah? Where you're saying, where is God in my family? In my children? I've sought to serve God without compromise. I've sought to bring them up in the right way. I have prayed. But there's no sign. There's no fruit. There's no evidence. There may be other circumstances, other events, other things that are a burden to you. Many of God's people carry lifelong burdens with them. And it is very easy to be overcome by those burdens, to be almost sunk by them, to be overwhelmed by them. Well, let me ask you, has God actually then abandoned you? Does God hold you in contempt? Is God sitting in heaven and looking at you with sarcastic laughter? Is he leaving you entirely to yourself? Is that the kind of God who is the God of Elijah? This God takes care of this man at his most fundamental need. Sleep, food, and water. That's the kind of father we have. Once he has regained his strength, then he will meet with him on Mount Horeb, and he will send him back, a different man, with a task to complete. But what I want to dwell on by way of application and conclusion this evening is this. When you are tempted to sit under your own broom tree, when those burdens become too much for you, where do you find relief? You find your relief in your God. You find your relief in Jesus Christ, in His heart of compassion, in His heart of mercy and of sympathy, in His care. He cares about you, body and soul. Remember, what Elijah went through is very little compared with what Jesus Christ went through. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14, 15 and 16 that Jesus Christ has been tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus Christ has been tempted as Elijah was tempted. And yet he was without sin. And because he has been tempted in all points like we are, yet he is without sin, he is able to sympathize with us. And because he is the eternal Son of God, our great High Priest, he has omnipotent, all-powerful compassion. And he can come to our aid and give us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ there in the garden of Gethsemane. See the bloody sweat upon his brow as he prays, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. And he's alone. The disciples are fast asleep. They cannot watch and pray with him. But here is the Lord battling in agony in the garden of Gethsemane. 
And then see him on Golgotha, hear him cry out as he bears our sins in his own body on the tree, as he experiences the wrath and the curse of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are far greater deaths than the deaths of Elijah's own soul. These are far greater deaths than the deaths you will ever carry. It burdens in your own heart what you suffer under your own broom tree is nothing, is very little by comparison to what Christ endured and what Christ suffered. And that same Christ is able to succor you and strengthen you and come to your aid. When I say what we go through is very little by comparison, I do not mean to minimise the reality of what Elijah went through and what we sometimes go through. And God doesn't minimise it. This man went through it. Broken. Disappointed. Drained. But it was comparatively little compared to Christ. But nevertheless, God met him. The angel of the Lord met him at his point of need. Perhaps you've reached a point. At some stage in your life you can look back and say, I reached the point where Elijah reached. Lord, it's enough. Take my life. But you're still here. God didn't answer your prayer. Instead, he gave you grace. He gave you strength. Jesus Christ succored you gave you the help, the grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. And you are here as a different man, a different woman now, than when you prayed or thought that same way as Elijah felt. You see, we have a great high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ. He was crucified for us. He has been raised from the dead and now he's exalted at God's right hand. And he is compassionate towards us. Tempted in all points like we are. Elijah had that distorted outlook, that distorted vision. It's very interesting that when you read in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, when we are urged there in verses 1 and 2 to run the race, the writer says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Looking looking when Elijah saw that his seeing was distorted a Christian is one who is to see to look unto Jesus and looking unto Jesus and only looking unto Jesus are you able then to run the race that is set before you 
and not run away as Elijah did. And as you look unto Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, then you are at the first point of being restored and being renewed and being revived and being strengthened. And the grace of God is beginning to work again in your heart and in your life. And you reach the point where you are able to go back and to pray again for those who are still not converted. You go back and talk again perhaps to your husband, to your children, to your friends, to your family. You're ready to go back and put your hand to the plough once again. But it's only as you keep your eye upon Jesus Christ and receive the grace and strength from him to run the race that is set before you. Only then can you be renewed and rekindled to serve God. We haven't finished yet this part of the story of Elijah. And God has not yet finished with him. There is much more that he has to say to him on Horeb. But I wanted to focus upon this man's death wish. See what led to it. What the reasons were for it. And then to see the way in which God began to restore his servant in love and in compassion. That points us to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. It may well be, there are many commentators who say in verse 7, the angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. If that is the case, it makes this passage even more precious. It's Christ who came to Elijah. It's Christ who came and ministered to him fed him, gave him water to drink, as it were, put him back to sleep again to rest and to restore him, then to be a faithful servant of Christ once again. That's our Saviour. That's our God.